0: going to let the children be dismissed for uh, junior church at this time, and I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, once again to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 13, and we are looking at the chapter that defines love, and I think a chapter that gives us a beautiful portrait of Christ and also a picture of what we should be seeking to be in our lives on a regular basis. I want to wish you a happy Father's Day. Uh, to uh, all of you dads out there this morning and uh, look forward to a good day spending time with our uh, families and enjoying them and the blessing that they are to us. As we were singing about God's grace, uh, I was thinking about our discussion this morning on the topic of love. And in my notes, I have just kind of put down a couple of thoughts as we get back into this study. There's always a challenge before us when we are looking at a list of characteristics in Scripture. Um, fear, intimidation, how can I remember all those things? If I can't remember all of them, how do I do them all? How do I get all this stuff together to become the Christ-like person that God desires for me to be? Our topic over the last few weeks has been the topic of love as it is expressed in First Corinthians 13. And we We've talked about the fact that there are three words used in the New Testament that describe love. Two of them are, if you will, feeling-oriented, physical, and reciprocal. Okay, they're, they're give-and-take kind of words, by and large. They're both good words, and they have a positive place in the Word of God in terms of what relationships are to look like. But those two words in and of themselves are not enough. The word that Paul chooses to use in this text, the word that's used in John chapter 3 and verse 16, where it says that God so loved the world, is that stronger word that defines the love of God as a choice on the part of a Christian to obey God by sacrificially seeking what is best for others. Okay, a choice to obey God in the broad array of commands in Scripture by sacrificially seeking what is best for others. It is demanding and it is the only context in which healthy Christian relationships can thrive for the glory of God. In a place where we come saying, how can I be of benefit? How can I make a contribution to a friend or to a brother or sister in Christ, to my wife, to my kids, whoever it is in my sphere of influence, how can I do that? But looking at the list is intimidating. The demands of biblical love are indeed high and very costly. We can look at the list and say, okay, as I look at this list, I need to make choices. If I look at verse 4, I need to say, am I going to be patient? Am I going to be kind? Am I going to stop envying? Will I choose to be humble? Okay, and you can start to make your Christian experience a list of choices that you make on a daily basis, thinking that those choices in and of themselves are going to result in change in your heart. I have a word for you this morning that I hope is encouraging to you. The Christian life is not simply about choices that we make in our mind or in our flesh. It's not me looking at this text and saying, you know what, it would be really nice for my wife to have a patient husband. Therefore, I'm going to choose to be a patient husband. Okay, when we start living the Christian life that way, we forget the nature or essence of the Christian life. In John chapter 3, Jesus is defining the Christian life to Nicodemus. He says, Nicodemus, that which is born out of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now you can work your way through the rest of the New Testament and find this theme about the weakness of the flesh and strength that Christians find through the indwelling presence of God in their lives. My concern, as we work through a list, is that you don't go out of here saying, okay, I got three, th- three more things on the list, three more choices that I need to make on a regular basis that are going to get me to the place where God wants me to be. Sam Storms gives us this warning. He says, growth in the Christian life is not a list of autonomous choices, Okay, it's not a list of autonomous choices, things I think about, make a decision, and therefore, because I made that decision, I'm somehow different. All right, how many of you have ever raised your hand in a service to acknowledge and say, you know what, I want this area of my life to change, or have gone forward in an invitation, or sitting in a, in a pew after the service, in our chair after the service, said, God, I'm, I am choosing to make this change today, and found that the next day you were very weak to implement your commitment. Ever had that experience? You know why? Because that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16, Paul talks about the cooperative nature of the Christian experience. He says, This is what I say walk in the Spirit, and then you will not fall prey to impatience. Walk in the Spirit, and then you will not envy. Okay, Walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. Because ultimately, that's the battle that I have. My battle is with my fleshly, selfish tendencies. And by making fleshly choices, I can't defeat that. Okay, The commitment I have to make is to say, God, only by the indwelling power of your Spirit can I live this life. Only by the power of your indwelling Spirit can I begin to look anything like this portrait of love that's found in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 6. So what I need to do as I start is to start by praying and saying, God, my flesh is incredibly anemic and weak. It doesn't have the capacities to become the things that you want me to be. I, in my flesh, don't have the ability to be the husband my wife needs or the father that my children deserve. I don't have that in me. So I need to walk in the power of your Spirit. Folks, what I want to do is kill your self-confidence and give you a God-confidence. That's what Sam Stones was after when he said that. The Christian life is not a series of continuous choices in my flesh. Are there choices involved? And please understand, okay, there's a balance because the nature of the Christian life is you walk in the Spirit, and as you walk in the Spirit, what does God do? God will begin to produce the fruits of the Spirit in your life. As you on a regular basis, say, God, I want to be patient today. I want to be, I want to be free from envy today, I want to be humble today. If you go to God and say, God, I want to be there. It's different than saying, I choose today to be humble. It's going to God saying, God, this Christian experience is a cooperative life. We sang about the grace of God as we ended our time in worship. A verse popped into my mind, 2 Peter chapter 3, and verse 18. It talks about the grace of God that sustains us. There is a grace of God that saves us. But there is also this necessary grace of God on a regular basis in our life, a grace that sustains us. And so in 2 Peter 3.18, Peter says, grow in grace. Okay, and what, as I go through these things, it's easy for the, some of these things to be very convicting and to think that being convicted is the essence of change. Being convicted is, 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 is the, in a sense, the, it's the moment when God's Spirit shows me what I lack. And it should be the moment when I go to God and say, God, I can't produce this in my flesh. It's when I go to God and I say, God, I need your help today. That's why your daily quiet time is so critical. So crucially, you have time each day where you check in with God and you go to God and you say, God, I'm just here to remind you that I'm a human who is desperately in need of your grace and your help to live this day. Okay, because by depending on God, I kill the flesh. And I invite the Spirit of God to begin to work in my life. And when he begins to work, what does he do? He produces the fruit of the Spirit. And something fascinating you'll find. If you go back and look at Galatians 5.22 and begin to compare it to 1 Corinthians 13.4-6, through 6, you're going to say, you know what, these lists look in many ways similar. This is the context in, the, in which the instruction is given is, is different. Or in 1 Corinthians 13, it's in the context of church life, okay, in terms of spiritual gifts and their function, In Galatians 5, it's in terms of the relational components. 1 Corinthians 13, context of service components, selfless giving of our lives to each other for the glory of God and the church. So this morning, let's begin by looking at this text from this patient perspective that says, God, in order for these things to be done in my life, I am in desperate need of your help and assistance. Would you bow your heads with me just quickly? just want to pray and just ask God to do this for us today. Father, as we encounter your word this morning, I pray that you will give us hearts that are humble before you. Holy Spirit, come. Come. And as we sang earlier and requested in song, fill this place fill our hearts. Lord, overcome our natural tendencies in our flesh to resist what you want to do today. Overcome them, Lord, just like you did when you saved us. You overcame our rebellion and you set us free by grace through faith alone. And Lord, our desire this morning is that as we look at these three characteristics of love that our hearts would be drawn by your spirit to say, God, I'm not like that. I can't be like that in my flesh but I want to be like that by the spirit so that lord in the end when these characteristics begin to emerge in our lives we will give glory and honor and credit to you alone so lord bless now your truth to us quiet our hearts and make us receptive i ask in jesus name amen amen verse 5 1 corinthians 13 and I'm just going to put the word love in here because that's the direction this goes. Love is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. I'm going to pick on the first three words in this verse. Love is not rude. Now, when I think about this list, what I'm thinking in my mind is, would not my wife love someone? who is like the person described in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 6. Would I not, if I really love my wife, not want to give to her the gift of a man who is changed regularly by the Spirit of God who is made more loving and more like Christ? Right? I think every man would have to say, you know what? That's the gift I would love to give to my wife. And then what I want to tell you this morning is you can't do that in your flesh. If we're going to overcome this first tendency that Paul directs us to, he says love is not rude, and and I want to state each of these as best I can in the positive. If love is not rude, then what is it? Okay, if it's not rude, what what's what would you say is the opposite? You can speak out loud real quick. Okay, what's the opposite of being rude? Okay, consider it's That's the first word that came to my mind. Okay, if I'm not being rude, what am I doing? I'm being considerate. Say to our kids when they're being rude to an adult, running down the hall and there's older people around, they're made nervous by that running. He said, hey, you need to be considerate of the older people that are around you. It's rude to run in the hall because you're making people around you nervous. Okay, we have a natural tendency towards this self-centeredness that comes out in rudeness. The opposite of it is to say to God, God, cultivate in my heart a considerate or honorable spirit. If I'm going to define the word rude this morning, it would be this. It would be actions that are indecent or shameful or that the way the original puts it is things that raise a blush, that are insensitive or inconsiderate statements or actions that individuals do towards each other. It's carelessness in word. It's thoughtlessness in action. The King James Version says it this way. It says, a person who is loving does not act unbecomingly. Okay, and that idea carries that idea of of it's things that are inappropriate. This, This is not quite right. Okay, a person who is loving is seeking to fight against that tendency. Now, I don't watch a lot of TV, pick up a little bit of stuff on, uh, off the Internet. Occasionally some shows that people tell me I should be checking out. Uh, I have noticed a trend in our culture with a lot of the reality shows or the talent shows or the, you know, the uh, uh, American Idol, those types of shows. Okay, what at the beginning of those shows, when they're first getting started, what what does the show tend to sell on the basis of? What what tends to promote the the popularity of the show? And the critiques that are given. What what? Those without talent. Yeah, and it it's fascinating because a lot of the things that are said are if your kids said them to people, they would be in trouble. But guess what? We sit there and we're entertained by it. Okay. Well, what is it? Well. If somebody walked up to someone and said some of these things, I would just simply say, that's rude, that's terribly inappropriate, that's demeaning. But I live in a culture that because of reality shows and kind of voyeurism, it, it's, we're, we're ending up in a place where we're making fun of people, and it's what gets ratings. Okay, fascinating, isn't it? Because Paul can say, love is not rude, it's not discourteous. If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, just flip back one page... And look at verses 20 through 22, where the Apostle Paul is giving instruction concerning the Lord's table. Verse 20, he says this, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now, what's happening? They're having communion, but Paul can look at it and say, that is not, the, or you can call it the Lord's Supper. You can have bread and grape juice or wine, whatever you have, you can have it there, but that is not the Lord's Supper. The question is, why is Paul saying that? How can he give that assessment? Notice what he says in verse 21. He says, for as you eat, each goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat in or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. Well, what was something that was present in the church in Corinth? There was a rudeness, even in the celebration of what brings Christians together a lack of considerateness, a lack of consideration for the preciousness of others. Uh, as I was going through this and thought about the impact of inappropriate behavior or inconsiderate behavior on people, I thought about a commercial I heard two days ago on WABC radio. It was a, a commercial that is promoting the re-election of uh, Mayor Bloomberg in New York City, who theoretically has done a fairly decent job of keeping crime down in the city. One of the main selling points of that ad was this. It was that New York City of large cities in America, think if I have this correctly, has the lowest crime rate of large cities in America. You know what they attribute that to? Ultimately, they attribute it to the crackdown on quality of life crimes. Okay? What are quality of life crimes? People beeping their horns all the time. People playing loud music. Littering walls. Okay, what did Mayor Giuliani do when he came in as mayor of New York City? You know what he did? He cracked down on all the quality of life issues because quality of life issues. What did he cra- He cracked down on everything that would be rude and disconsiderate. And guess what the effect of it was on New York City? Over time, just clamp it down, clamp it down on bad behavior. It started to produce appropriate behavior. Okay, what is Paul saying here in this text? Love is not rude. And when you, when you cultivate a, an attitude of being considerate and caring and honorable towards other people, what you find is that the rest of your demeanor begins to change. That's why as parents and raising children, you work on little things because those little things become big things. Okay, when you're at the grocery store, are you considerate? Here's a question for you. What do you do with the shopping cart when you're done shopping? Okay, depends. It depends. My kids are there. Just kidding. Uh, The considerate thing or the lifestyle thing, the honorable thing, is not to leave it in the parking space next to you because it's not rolling anywhere. Okay, you, you kind of steady it up, make sure, okay, it's not moving, it's not going to hit my car, and then leave it there. Okay, litter, little things that your kids do. Why, why should you focus on those kinds of things? Because what you're trying to do is cultivate in them an attitude of love and that love will be expressed in being considerate and being honorable and remembering there are people coming behind us, okay, in, in the kitchen after you're done. I, I, I find myself doing this. After getting a little bit of ice cream at night, there's a little bit, okay? It's easy to just let the dish in the sink. What am I thinking in my mind? Well, somebody else will take care of it. What does the considerate mind do? The considerate mind says, you know what, I'm going to take care of that because it's not something else my wife has to do. It's an honorable approach. I don't do that effectively. Okay, but that's one of those areas I thought about. You know what, it's just there are little things that we do that communicate love and honor and respect, we live in a culture that's just, in, I think, in many ways, lost the value of that. I think another way that that may come across is in our communication of our convictions about the gospel or in our beliefs about political preferences. You know, sometimes we can, we can be blunt to the point that our bluntness lacks love. Does that make sense? Especially when you disagree with the people that are in charge politically, it's easy to sound or actually to be inconsiderate, so that while I am confronting something I have strong beliefs about, I actually may be committing sins that are even greater than the person I'm criticizing. Mom and dad ever found yourself doing that with your kids? Don't yell at each other. Okay, you so, say, okay. <laughs> there may be a better way to approach that, right? When we tend to be inconsiderate and rude and Domineering. God wants us to be considerate, be honorable, show respect, demonstrate the kind of respect you expect from your kids, pull them aside, speak to them quietly, and ask them to change their behavior in relationship to their siblings. It's so important that we work on this issue of attitude. Uh, Barclay, a commentator on 1 Corinthians, said this, he said, sometimes we can be so blunt that we are almost brutal. We can be so forthright about truth that we become careless in the expression of it and don't think about the audience that we're communicating it to. Love is not rude. Love is careful. In our speech, For Ephesians 4.15, we're called to do this. Speak the truth in love. It talks about the characteristic or attitude in which I seek to communicate the love of God to the world around me. God wants us to be people that are considerate. Ask yourself this question this morning just as a challenge. Does my home have an atmosphere of honor? What I'm really asking is this. Are you considerate? Are you considerate? A book called The Love There offers these questions as a test. It says, how does your spouse feel about about the way that you speak and act around them? Are you considerate? Are you honorable or are you rude? Would your mate, your children, your classmates at school, would they say that you are condescending or that you are a blessing to be with? That you're considerate, you seek to honor those around you. Sometimes we just have to ask ourselves, am I in violation of love by allowing myself to be shameful or indecent in my relationships with those around me? One writer puts it this way. It said, to the extent that our loving is ungracious or to the extent that our living is ungracious and inconsiderate, it is unchristian. To the extent that our living is ungracious or inconsiderate, it is unchristian. Okay? God wants us to love and to represent Christ in that way. And we do that by cultivating in our hearts and in our lives an honorableness, a courtesy. Let's not forget the courtesy, tact, and politeness in the Christian life. good things. Is it part of your experience? Is it part of your life? Can you look at your life and say, I am seeking to kill rudeness by being polite, honorable, respectful, and under control in my relationships with those around me? Another thought that comes up in this verse is that love is not self seeking. talking about this in the adult Sunday school class on parenting. Uh, And self Selfishness or self centeredness is so powerful in our lives, isn't it? Are you ever caught off guard by how self centered you can be? Your wife or a friend just says, Hey, did you think when you said that, did you understand the impact of that on so and so, on this friend or whoever? Do we think about the effects of our behavior? Uh, someone who is loving is not self seeking, instead, they seek to serve others. Selfishness is a devastating mindset in our relationships. The message takes this verse and translates it this way. It says, love is not always about me first. A loving person doesn't always want it their way, or let's say it this way, okay? To be honest, I always want it my way. But a loving person is going to what? They're going to defer. They're going to defer and say, you know what? It doesn't always have to be about me. It doesn't always have to be the way that I want it to be. Okay? I can defer to the desires uh, and, 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 and uh, preferences of those in my sphere of influence. It's the way that we put ourselves down, not in a demeaning way, but it's the way that we put ourselves in a place where we can serve. Linsky said this about selfishness. He said, if we find the cure to human selfishness, we have just replanted the Garden of Eden find a cure for selfishness, you have just replanted the Garden of Eden. Okay, What is he saying? He's saying at the root of most of our sin are very strong selfish tendencies. It's about life how we want it to be rather than life how God wants it to be. Every parent that's raising children knows this incredible, strong battle. You don't have to train your children to be selfish. And, please understand this, they don't only learn it from you. Okay? They come by it naturally. It's bound up in our flesh. Okay? And you're holding that little one, and they stiffen themselves, and they just want to get down, and they want life on their terms. Guess what they're doing? All right? They're expressing so It's a naturally arising self-centeredness. And if you can find a way to destroy that in your life, which I think you can by the power of the Spirit of God, You will find the end of a lot of sin in your life. And you will find the beginning of loving and joy-filled service towards your brothers and sisters in Christ and towards your family. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 2 real quick. Just turn ahead a few books. Philippians chapter 2. I want us to look real quickly at the example of Christ in relationship to this topic. The example of Christ being selfless, not always about me first. Philippians 2 and verse 3. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Same kind of idea here. Love is not self-seeking. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, and that ties back to what we talked about last week, consider others as better, and here's the idea, more deserving than yourselves. Each of you should look, not to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Okay, what does selfless love do? Okay, here's what selfless love does. It sees the preciousness and value of others. Okay, and that's what this text is encouraging us to do. Look at others as more deserving than yourself. Okay, the idea is this. Give preference in terms of your treatment to other people. But it's always, always easy to have life to be about us. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying, look, look at Jesus. Verse 5, he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ. And then you go through the next few verses, and what is he doing? He's emptying himself. He's going towards the cross to pay the price for us. And He is giving, giving, giving with us on his mind. Okay? That's the inspiration for selfishness. It sees the preciousness of others and makes a choice to seek the benefit of others in the power of the Spirit. It says, Holy Spirit, show me where I am self-centered And reveal to me how I can better serve those in my sphere of influence. How I can value the preciousness of those that you love. And then the second thought is that this agape love is preoccupied with what is best for others. Now look, I have a natural tendency to be preoccupied with my tendencies. Okay? This text says that we are to be preoccupied with what would be better for others. In humility, second half of verse 3, consider others as better... Then yourselves. Romans chapter ten. I just want to read this verse where you. you don't have to turn back there. Romans chapter ten and verse twelve. Listen to what the word of God says. It says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, and honor one another above yourselves. Okay, honor one another. Prefer each other above yourselves. Think of the disciples of Jesus. Okay, and I think we talked about this a little bit last week. Did they have a self-seeking tendency amongst the devoted followers of Christ? Was there a selfish tendency? And the answer is so clear. On three occasions in the Gospels, you find them asking about who's better and who's going to have higher rank when the kingdom comes. And when they have an opportunity to serve Christ, they don't take it. Okay, there, even within the disciples that lived with Christ, there were selfish tendencies. Now what I'm going to, you know, wager on is this. If the disciples of Christ who lived in his presence wrestled with self-centeredness, then I think Tim Hoff is probably wrestling with self-centeredness. What the Word of God is telling us this morning is this. Love is not self-seeking. And how do I fight against it? See the preciousness of other people. Redeemed by the grace of God. Loved by him. And love, in this case then, is preoccupied with what is best for others. It does not, as one writer put it, believe that finding oneself is the highest good. It is not preoccupied with self-worth. Okay? Now, I don't think it's healthy for you to go around beating yourself up, humiliating yourself. Sometimes you get around people that do it all the time, it gets old fast. But, I should not make the goal of my life finding my, myself as the highest good. I should not be caught up with, saturated with this selfish kind of concern. Now, when I say this, love is not selfless. Here's the thought I have in my mind. Selfless love is rare. It's rare. If you go to Philippians 2 and look towards the end, of, the, if you're still there, look at the end of the chapter, Philippians 2 and verse 20. Paul's talking about sending two servants to the church in Philippi from prison. One of the ones that he wants to send, his beloved son, Timothy. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I may also be cheered when I hear reports about you. And then he makes this shocking statement. He says, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare or well-being. What is Paul saying? I don't have anybody else in my sphere of influence who is so selfless as Timothy is in a way that alters his personal experience and relationship with others. He is constantly thinking about others. Folks, what a blessing we could be to our church family. What a blessing we could be in the context of our homes. Just think through your sphere of influences of what a blessing we would be if we would kill self-centeredness. And begin to focus when we come to church say, okay, who is here today that I can be an encouragement to? Who needs to experience today the love of Christ through my life? That's the way we should come to the house of God. The greatest threat to biblical love is my self-centeredness. Mom and Dad, can I encourage you to do this? In your home, create an environment, where the needs, the happiness, the encouragement of others comes first. Just make little independent choices in the power of the Spirit. Make adjustments that move towards an other-centeredness rather than a self-centeredness. And what you will begin to experience is a greater degree of peace and harmony in the context of your home. Love is not self-centered. Last thought that I want to look at this morning is this. Love is not irritable. Love is not irritable. If if I'm stating this in the positive, I'm saying it this way. It is patient when it is provoked. Okay, it's patient when it is provoked. The idea of the word is this. It is not easily angered, easily provoked. It's not touchy like a, or it's not touchy, uh, a blistering temper barely hidden beneath the surface of a respectable facade, is the way that one put it. Right, a blistering temper, laying just beneath the surface of the facade. The reputation of that person becomes this: they're touchy. You have to be careful what you say to them. Always cautious around them. Everybody around you is walking on eggshells. Why? Because they don't know how you're going to respond to circumstances. Love doesn't put other people on edge. It's not rude in that way. It's not self-centered in that way. And you start to see how these tie together. Okay. If I'm given to being ang- to being angry quickly, to showing a poor temper quickly. You know what I am? I'm being rude, and I'm being very self-centered. Okay? Watch the connection. If I tend to throw off the handle quickly with my words, then there's probably a lack of honor for others. There's probably a focus on myself that leads to this expression of anger. Okay, and I need to go back and check the root cause. I'm not honoring others. I'm not seeing the preciousness of others. My life is about me. Therefore, when you mess with my plan, I blow up on you. Okay, in marital counseling, this is something you try to point out to people. Okay, everybody gets married with expectations. Expectations of what my life will be like. Yesterday uh, at 11 o'clock in the morning, most, maybe most of you don't know this, Mike Kaplan got married, okay? young guy that grew up in our church, trusted Christ is his senior year of high school and his life has dramatically changed. He's graduated from uh, his master's degree in seminary and is working towards a further degree. Yesterday, they expect, expect, expressed expectations. Well, what they hope their life will be like. Mike is, tends to be a very realistic person. He said, I know I'm going to have to work at maintaining what we promised today. Okay, Here's how you make someone angry. Frustrate their expectations. Be responsible for stealing and killing their dream. And what you will experience is wrath and anger. Now, the reason I say that is this. We can be experiencing all kinds of turmoil in our life, in our work experience, in our church relationships, Okay, in our family, with our kids. Okay, Why are we experiencing that? Well, in many cases, I think it's because we come into the context of relationships with unrealistic expectations. We don't realize that in every relationship I'm involved in, I am dealing sinner to sinner. Okay? Nobody in this room, if you're married, married a perfect mate. Nobody in this room who is engaged is going to marry a perfect mate. Okay, there we we bring into relationships. Expectations. The person that destroys those expectations will become the object of my anger if I am not very careful. Okay? And so what I need to do when I go into relationships, if I'm going to be patient when I'm provoked, okay, if I find this tendency, here's the question I want to ask you. How do you overcome that tendency towards a bad temper if you find it in your life? Okay? If you find it in your set of circumstances right now, how do you put that to death in the power of the Spirit? And here's what I want you to remember. Remember that there is a danger in anger. Okay, anger is dangerous. It comes with a warning label on it. Proverbs 15:18 says this, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms a dispute. Psalm 16:32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. And see, what is he saying? There is great power in self-control and there is great danger in a temper that runs outside of the boundaries of what is appropriate. Proverbs 14, 29. He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick to anger is exalting foolishness. Exalting foolishness. Okay? So, how do we overcome the tendencies to be impatient with people, to be angry with people. Remember that there is a danger in anger. It is a sin that never travels alone. Okay, when it's present, you can be fairly certain that there are other issues in the mix. Okay, and we need to be very, very, very cautious. Most of us can probably remember the damage that was caused by reckless, angry words that were expressed towards you at some point in your life. I was in a setting recently where someone mentioned that, and one of, the, one of the young ladies sitting at the table, I heard her start going off and talking about all the things that had been said to her years ago that she could remember. You know what they were? They were rude, they were selfish, and they were expressed in the heat of a moment, and they had a damaging effect on this individual's life. I want to tell you something. If you met that person, you would never know. Hidden beneath the surface is a lot of pain that came from friends or parental figures who had spoken insults into their life carelessly, rudely, selfishly, recklessly. Anger is a sin that is never alone. I want to encourage you this morning, if it's a problem, a struggle in your life and in my life, what we need to do is put it to death by the power of the Spirit of God. When I go into relationships, I also need to have realistic expectations. I need to realize that if I go into my marriage relationship expecting heaven on earth, I will be disappointed. If when I have children, I think that my kids are always going to be obedient, not have the struggles that other kids struggle with, you're going to be severely disappointed. And your children may become the object of your wrath or ill temper. Why? Because they're not being the kids that you wanted them to be. Aren't you grateful to God... When we sin, aren't you grateful that He is merciful towards you? Aren't you glad that He is not ill-tempered? Be like Him in this way. Make a decision. This is the third step. Make a decision to be hard to offend and quick to forgive. Be reluctant to be angry. Don't, as Romans 12 says, don't try to overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. Okay, be careful about anger. Make sure that you take steps to defeat it and to kill it. And then this last thought, which is very, very simple, and I think I've shared this with us somewhere along the way before. When you're put in a situation where you're provoked, somebody sticks their finger in your eye, relationally or emotionally, make a decision Now? That when my mate frustrates me or when my children disappoint me, when my coworker doesn't measure up or carry their, their uh, part of the load, make a decision now. Don't react. Okay? Don't react to the circumstance. Act upon the circumstances. Okay? Make a decision. I'm not going to react. I'm going to act. Okay? We all have a tendency when we're poked in the eye to respond. Love is not easily angered. It learns how to give an appropriate, healthy, helpful response when it is provoked. Realize, too, that some offenses should be overlooked. Love covers a multitude of sin. My motive in correction must always be to restore, not to embarrass, not to belittle, not to pay back. And when I'm responding in the moment, there's usually something I'm seeking to accomplish. On the spot, quickly. What I need to do is just pause when that circumstance comes up, take the circumstances into consideration, come back with a response. Sometimes, parents, there may be situations with your children that when they tell you you're, like, blown away, I want to encourage you to do something. Don't respond at that moment. Say, you know what, you need to go to your room, and I need to think about that. And give a measured response that is not characterized by ill temper. Okay? Because what the Bible says is this, the wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Okay, so fight the tendency to be unbecoming or dishonorable. Fight the tendency to be self-seeking in your relationships. Fight the tendency to be irritable by being patient when you are provoked. One writer talking about marriage made this statement. He said, when you understand what God wants you to do, you're going to want to quit. You're going to want to quit. When you understand what it means to love people... There's going to be part of you that's going to say, you know what, I don't know if I'm up for that. I don't know if I want that. I don't think I can do that. I want to encourage you this morning to look at this list that we're going through and go to God and say, God, I'm, I'm, I'm not a considerate person, not to the level that I should be. I don't, like I should, seek opportunities to serve. When I'm provoked, I'm not as patient as I ought to be. I hope you realize as you go through this kind of a list that these characteristics are the result of the infilling and indwelling of the Spirit of God. And if I, if I harbor sin in my life and hide sin in my life, what I'm doing is frustrating the work of the Spirit. In Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 4, verse 29, it says, uh, In your anger do not sin. Don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. Don't grieve the Spirit of God. And in your anger give a foothold. To the devil. Okay, what happens? If I'm rude and selfish and angry, what am I doing? I'm giving Satan a place to operate in my sphere of influence. I'm giving him a place to operate in my home. And I'm grieving the power of the Spirit of God. And if I grieve the power of the Spirit of God, guess what? The things that I want to be, I'll never be able to be. Until I confess that sin to God and say, God, I want you to fill me with the power of Your Spirit. Make me the man that You want me to be. Make me the young lady that You want me to be. I want to be a loving person. I've never had someone go through this and say, You know what? I really don't want to be like that. I think the typical person is going to look at that list and say, God, I wish I was like that. I wish I was that kind of a child in my home. I wish I was that kind of husband to my wife. Go down the list. And why don't you just go to God and say, God, I can't do this. I want to but I can And in your confession and brokenness, why don't you say, God, would you cleanse me of my sin, of being irritable, of being rude, of being self-centered? Would you cleanse me of that and fill me with your spirit so that the fruit of the spirit, the evidence of Christ-like love becomes the norm in my life? But when it's done, I'll look at it and say, God, that's not me. That's your work that's producing those kinds of results. In my life. If you're here this morning. And you've never trusted Christ. I want to share a verse of scripture with you. Just as we close. From 1 John chapter 4. And verse 7. Dear friends. Let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God. And knows God. Because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. So. If you're here this morning, you don't know Christ, and you're wondering if God loves you, okay? I have great news for you from this passage of Scripture. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might, notice this now, live through Him. That is, new life brought by the Spirit might become our life. This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we should love each other. Do you see the connection? I move towards God saying, God, I need your help to make me a loving man. But I can only move towards God in that way as a sinner because God, in His grace and mercy, has provided a covering for my sin because of His love. Do you see? He sent his son to be the wrath-removing sacrifice. So the wrath of God, the anger of God that I deserve, he's taken away through his son, Jesus. So if you're here this morning you say, well, I've never trusted Christ. I know that I'm a sinner. I know I need a heart change. How do I get it? God has made it available through his love revealed in Jesus, who became for you on the cross the wrath-removing sacrifice of God. And every Christian who has experienced that kind of love knows how to love. Why? Because God took the anger that I deserve. He placed it upon his precious son. My sin and its guilt and its consequence are forever gone. Now, if you experience that kind of love, don't you then know how to love others? I deserved his anger and wrath. He gave me his son. And John says, this is how we know what love is. He took rebels. He took people who did not meet His expectations and restored them by His grace. And if you've never trusted Him this morning, I want to encourage you. There for you is a Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. And for everyone here is here this morning that has trusted Christ, you have an example of love in your life. And that example is Jesus Christ. He paid the price for your sin. Selfless sacrifice. Caring for you. He bore your wrath. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?